Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next storyteller is Sam Bloom. He has a story about finding family in an unusual place. I was wearing a Between the Buried and Me shirt when I was first thrown violently into a wall of mattresses. <laughs> it was hot in that garage. I'd say a good 120 degrees, and I was holding my most prized possession, my guitar, my Gibson SG, who I have lovingly named Mel, and I was doing what I love to do most in the world, was to play in a band. The venue we were playing at was called the FSU House. It was in Cedar Falls. It was a garage. This was in the early aughts. Um, I've heard it has since burned down. <laughs> it was right across the street from a subway and down the way from a happy chef, both of which I frequented often. And the FSU was standing for, well, FS up. You guys can figure it out. There were about 30 to 40 kids packed into that garage. We were all gleefully smiling, headbanging, moshing, all to this, this wonderful genre of music that we all coalesced around metal. I didn't know their names or where they were from, but in that putrid and moldy space, <laughs> we were a community of outcasts. So, when you're a metalhead, you, you have to, it, it, it's something that you need to seek out. It's, it's an acquired taste, it, 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 and it requires you to search it out. And as every metalhead will tell you, it requires a gateway band. So, <laughs> my eighth grade year coincided quite nicely with a certain local Iowa metal band's debut self-titled album, a little gem called Slipknot. <laughs> Being as this is the Des Moines Register, you guys are probably familiar. 25 years later, I still know every riff, every lyric, every breakdown Corey Taylor rap. So eighth grade and the door is open. And I start discovering that there's bands out there. There's, there's bands my age, local bands. And I start going to shows. Shows in Northeast Iowa, bands like Innocence Broken, Modern Life is War, um, From Citizen to Soldier, Infandus. And then you head north to Minneapolis and you get Nehemiah, Summary Execution, Martyr AD, with dead hands rising. You head over to Wisconsin. You can get End This Day, who turned into Coma Eternal. And then you get Seven Angels, Seven Plagues, who are still rocking as misery signals. You go over to Detroit and you get the granddaddies and the Black Dahlia murder. You head south a little bit to Peoria, Illinois, and you find my loves of the serpent sun. Then you go over to California, you get throwdown, you get bleeding through. You go through the south and you find 
cattle decapitation, you find cannibal corpse, you find mastodon, you go to the East Coast, you get botched, you get cave-in, then you head overseas, and you get to the French boys in Gohira, and then you go to Sweden, and you find the masters of Meshuggah. There is an ocean of music out there, but you have to find it, and you have to see it live, and inevitably, you got to buy a t-shirt. <laughs> So a few months go by and my closet is completely black. It's indecipherable band logos. It is skulls, gore, yeah. <laughs> and then, and it's all in an adult medium because I was, I was a little skinny at the time. Um, but then your mom looks at it and she finds, and she becomes rightfully terrified. <laughs> Speaking of which, I was 11 years old when I got my first guitar. It was a real piece of work. It was this plyboard nylon string mess. Uh, never stayed in tune, probably was 20 bucks at Sears of all places. My mom bought it and she figured it was, it was just a fad. This was gonna be something I'm gonna grow out of. But then she looks at me <laughs> with this devilish grin and she says, Sammy, if you can play Van Halen on this, I'll consider getting you an electric guitar. And she knew all I wanted to do was have an amp and a headbang to riffs of Rammstein. And <laughs> a month goes by and I sit my mom down and I'm wearing a Metallica load t-shirt. It was the re load reload days where they were alternative phase, whatever, it doesn't matter. And I busted out Van Halen's Panama from their album 1984. And then I stared at my mom dead-eyed until she took me to Bob's Guitars in Cedar Falls and got me a Squire Stratocaster beginner pack with a frontman amp, shoulder strap, and of course, the heavy picks. So I started my first band when I was a freshman in high school. It was all I really wanted to do. It was with my good friend, Nate. He was older than me. He had already graduated. And it was all encompassing to me. All I wanted to do was play this pissed off and aggressive music. And <laughs> my dad even let us use the basement for band practice. And he conveniently had to mow the lawn every time we did practice. <laughs> so after a few months, it, uh, the lawn got pretty immaculate. <laughs> Turns out, my buddy Nate, he was a little more interested in my older sister than he was advancing the band. It's cool though, they've been married almost a decade and they have three beautiful sons, so I, you know, I figure he made the right choice. Writing metal is a tricky business. It's where the majority of popular music is focused on the lyrics and the singer and the instrumentals are there to back that up. Metal is a wall-to-wall -wall labyrinth. You can do whatever you want. There is no constraints. And the vocalist is an equal member of the band as opposed to the focus. So therefore, you find out that there are the most talented musicians on earth <laughs> that are, have spent decades mastering their, their instrument and their craft, and then they, 
They play to these half-empty dive halls to a dozen people, and when you play their music to the majority of the public, it's dismissed as just like, eh, they're just screaming. So as a metal kid, you're, you're introverted, you're shy, you don't have a lot of friends, and you are inevitably not good-looking. <laughs> but when you go to these shows, you transcend yourself. You, you, you become part of this community, this family. And as the cool kids would tell you, you become, you become part of a scene. And then, inevitably, again, you buy a t-shirt. <laughs> so if you take anything from this, it's this. When you see another person wearing that band shirt, preferably a local band, you have a connection with that person. You, you've seen the same shit. You, you've both been trying to find this identity, and then until you found this genre of music, that search has been fruitless for you. And then you start a band, and then you play to an audience, and then you realize that you're not playing to an audience. You're playing to a family. So a while ago, <laughs> I was trying to think of my best day, my favorite day. And it was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. Um, side note, anyone tells you that their best day was the day their kid was born, that person is lying to you. That day is full of anxiety and stress and screaming and, and and sweat, and at the end of it, they hand you the seven-pound, slippery and screaming creature, and then they say, you take care of this. <laughs> Oliver and Elliot, I love you both. <laughs> but no, my favorite day was in February of 08. It was uh, Super Bowl Sunday, in fact. The Colts beat the crap out of the Bears, which made me happy. I'm a Vikings guy. But uh, the day before, my bass player, Noah, he gives me a call and he says, Hey, Sam, do you want to do a, do you want to open for Converge for a Super Bowl party? And I really didn't know what he was talking about. So I just kind of laughed and then hung up the phone. And then he called me back and he's like, No, Sam, seriously. Converge has an off date on their tour with Mastodon and they want to play a smaller venue with a local opener, and we were it. And I nearly vomited. <laughs> I gotta put this into context. Um, Converge is my all-time favorite band. I have several terrible tattoos to prove this. <laughs> they are this vicious mix of like metal, hardcore, grind, noise, all in this wonderfully beautiful artistic package of sound. Uh, the first time I saw them, I was 15 years old, and it was at Harry Mary's downtown. It's now called Lefties. And um, I saw them, and they were opening for Hatebreed. And their first song was a 12-minute opus called Jane Doe. They opened with a 12-minute song. <laughs> and I'm... Not much of a church-going guy, but um, that was a religious experience. <laughs> I knew right there I was doomed. I was doomed to a life of going to these shows, to sweating, to headbanging, and having a terminally 
painful back and neck. <laughs> so, and, and that was, that Converge did that to me, and my band was going to open for them. So day of the show comes up. We go to the venue early afternoon. It's Gabe's Oasis in Iowa City. It was called the Picador at the time, but before that it was called Gabe's Oasis. I don't, I don't get it. But we were there, and Converge was already on stage, and they're, you know, they're hitting the toms and the snare, getting the guitar levels right, and they ripped through a few songs, and I got to see them. And then it was our turn. And we did the same thing, and we got to rip through a couple songs, and then Converge stuck around to watch us. And I can't, I can't really explain that feeling. When you see a band that you adore, that you, that you idolize, that you, you love so much it hurts, and you have the tattoos <laughs> to prove it, and they're just normal dudes wearing flannel shirts, nodding along to riffs that you wrote in your dorm room. Like, it was an incredible feeling. So the night of the show, um, I'm up there with my other guitar player, Nate. This, was a, this is a different Nate. This is not the one banging my sister. Um, we're tuning our guitars in... <laughs> I know a lot of Nates. <laughs> and kids are flooding in. And Gabe's Oasis is not a big venue. Um, but hundreds of kids are coming in, and it's kind of unreal. And somebody comes up to us and asks Nate and I if we would like a drink. Of course, we say yes, they're free. And they brought us a triple shot of whiskey, I forget which kind, and I'm standing there with my guitar, and Nate's over here, and we take our shot, and we look at this crowd, and this is unreal that this was announced 24 hours earlier. And I've never felt so a part of something that I did at that moment. I haven't, I haven't seen Nate or talked to him in years. I hope he's doing all right. But at that moment, we were a family. I've never felt so connected to a person, to a group, to a crowd. We were a family right then. And then we played our 30-minute set, and that half hour was the most transcendent half hour of my life. Let's fast forward 15 years. I'm 37 now. <laughs> um, I just got married back in July. I have two, oh, July, June, sorry, Lydia. It was June. <laughs> um, I have two wonderful kids, Oliver and Elliot. They're five and seven, so they're a lot. Um, I teach AP literature, if you can believe that. <laughs> and I guess you could say, like, I, I grew up. But a few months back, I'm at the farmer's market downtown. I'm with my son, Oliver, and um, I'm wearing a, a black Dahlia Murder shirt, and it's got a D written in skulls on the back because they're, you know, they're from Detroit. And my son's wearing a Minecraft shirt. <laughs> and I'm mostly concerned about getting a breakfast burrito and stocking up on cheese curds. <laughs> and I'm holding his hand, and... I remember looking across the way, and there's this, there's this dude, and he's side-eyeing me. And I, I made eye contact with him, and he's probably in his 40s. 
He's bald, his teenage daughter furiously typing away. And we make eye contact, and he's wearing a Cannibal Corpse shirt. And we give each other, you know, the, the customary up-down. Um, and then we both look at each other and we smile. I never asked his name. I n never even talked to him. But at that moment, he and I were still a part of that community. We were still a part of that family. So thank you. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.